Uh, we're in a series called Manifesto, and uh, this is week three. Well, we actually did a little intro week, but that doesn't really count. We're kind of week three proper now. Uh, so if you know anything about that, we're kind of following the Sermon on the Mount for the next number of weeks. And this week is a slightly, we're, we're talking about relationships. You're going to see why it's kind of a slightly way to get, odd way to get to relationships when we start the passage in a wee second. So we're going to be reading from Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 to 26. It's just a little short one this week. It'll appear on the screens behind me. If you've got a Bible on your phone or you've actually got a, no, a real Bible with with you. Congratulations, 100 Christian points to you. Uh, so few people seem to have Bibles with them these days, and that's cool. Um, so why don't you take your eyes across the screen, and we're going to read together from Matthew chapter 5. Here we go. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there, remember that your brother or sister has something against you. Leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Truly I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. And we thank God for his word as it speaks to us today. Murder is today's kind of headline. If you were looking at that in a Bible, the heading above this little short passage in the Sermon on the Mount is murder, right? The thing about murder is that it's properly fascinating, okay? Uh, We've just spent two weeks on holiday, uh, and every night, as you do when you're staying in the house, you pretty much watch Netflix. So we've just been watching a series called The Confession Tapes. Has anybody watched that? I see. This is what it does because murder is fascinating, right? Actually, getting trying to get inside the head of what does it make for you to be a murderer? Like, what what sort of things do you have to have going on there? What sort of background do you have to have had? What makes someone a murderer, right? And it's especially fascinating if your name is Joy Dickinson, right? Because I have learned uh, so far in our eight years of marriage that she has a very particular taste whenever it comes to trash TV, right? Most people's trash TV is like the car. Kardashians, or like something along those lines, Love Island, who knows, God help you, ministry's available. Um, Hers is not that, right? Not Joy. Joy's trashy TV guilty pleasure is teen killers, right? I don't know if you ever watched teen killers, but it's like this whole thing. What is it, not, not only what does it make to make a murderer, but a teen murderer? Like what's going on there? So Joy is like glued to this show, but what does it take to make a murderer? It's fascinating, right? It's kind of a captivating thing. It's why shows like Making a Murderer have have had such big followings. It's why murder mysteries continue to captivate TV audiences. I mean, the formula hasn't changed in like 40 years of TV. It's still exactly the same. I mean, Poirot still somehow has new shows. How does Poirot? Surely he solved all the crimes, right? But it still goes on because we're fascinated in what it takes to make a murderer and what it takes to catch one, isn't it? See, I suspect that, you get that quality police gag there, I suspect that. 
Come on, you're better than that. I suspect that most of us have never actually spent any significant time around a murderer, and we're probably thankful for that, right? I suspect you haven't spent lots of time around them, though maybe you're sitting next to one right now. Uh, I don't know if you considered that for a minute. Maybe take a good look at them. I mean, Gareth, you're definitely a murderer. Anyway, um, uh, maybe, maybe you do as you look around, as you are right now. But actually, I had the amazing experience uh, whenever I worked for the Alpha Course to spend quite a lot of time uh, in prisons at the time. Uh, it had been one of the dreams of our board that we would see the Alpha Course running in all of the prisons in Northern Ireland. And at that point, we had never done it. So I was spending quite a bit of time trying to get the kind of infrastructure and the procedures in place. Because it's quite a complicated thing, bringing volunteers from local churches into a prison to run Alpha uh, with, with inmates at whatever prison, whether that's a women's prison or a youth kind of uh, facility or into the main prisons in Northern Ireland. It's really quite difficult a lot of the time, as it should be, thankfully. It's hard to get in, it's hard to get out, right? Um, and uh, so I spent quite a bit of time in and around the prisons, and that included the Breed Wing at McGabry, which is their life wing, um, which is full of murderers. And uh, obviously, as you look at me today, I was obviously deeply afraid every time I entered the Breed Wing. I mean, look at me, I'm just not cut out for that, that life, right? I'm like a skinny jean wearing pathetic millennial. I mean, I'm not meant for the life wing in any prison, okay? So I was like deeply afraid every time I would go in and these like massive guys or shifty looking guys were kind of like walking around and they were just all around you. But what I found out the more time that I was around there was that just about all of them had the same story again and again and again and again. What I found out was not what they tend to say about prisons, which is no one's ever guilty in a prison. Actually, when I was out and around most of the other wings, you did get the same. I never did it. But when you were in a life wing, and most of the people that were there for really serious crimes, most of them never said that. But what they did say was kind of the same story again and again, that if they'd killed someone, that they never actually set out and meant to. But events just kind of worked out the wrong way. Like they got into it with somebody and then things took a turn for the worse. They didn't expect it. They got carried away and then something happened and it was done. And it was like the same story again and again and again and again. And that carries, right? Because anger and evil, the sort of anger and evil that might take us to do something like murder someone is in all of us. Alexander Solzhenitsyn said that the line between good and evil runs through every human heart. And we know that to be true, don't we? We hear about a murderer or we watch a show or we read a book or we get in our minds, you know, that this person is inhuman. They're the worst of the worst type. You know, we typecast them, don't we? When really the truth is that the line, the same line that runs through their heart runs through your heart and runs through mine. And that's what makes today's passage actually so engaging, okay? Because I think it's so easy to read the title Murder and just like switch off. For once you're like, yes, Jesus, for once some part in the Bible doesn't apply to me, right? You're kind of thinking this is your moment to disengage. But actually the reality is that the sort of anger that could lead to murder is in all of us. I mean, we all know what it is to lose it, don't we? We all know what it is to just straight up lose it. A couple of years ago, I spent some time recording over a couple of days with um, a guy called David C. Clements that that I play guitar for. And we'd spent some time in the OEM Music Center downtown in the studio just upstairs there. And it had been a couple of really good days and we were pretty tired. We came down at the end of the last day. We packed all our stuff into the cars. And the only way out is through this big like wooden archway kind of road out, out onto the road. And somebody was parked in front of it, right? So we're like, oh, we can't get out. So we, we, we 
kind of shut the door of the car, we come back out, and as we get out there, we see uh, quite a prominent Northern Irish music guy. I'm not going to say his name, but pr- let's, th- let's take his name as prominent Northern Irish music guy, right? It's like pacing the road in front of this car. And we come out and we're like, uh, do you know whose car it is? And he's like, uh, no, I don't know whose car it is, but I'm fuming. And we were like, right, okay. Well, he's like, is it yours? We're like, no, clearly we want to get out as well. So, you know, no idea who it is. No, I've no idea. So he's like actually pacing the road, right? Uh, and at which point we see these like teenagers. Now we're talking like actual teenagers, right? Like 17, come around the corner and start walking up towards the car. And they've got like guitars over their shoulders and things like that. It turns out it's the next group who are in to go into the studio after we had finished. But they had arrived. We weren't finished yet. So they just like parked the car up and they went off to get a coffee. And they were coming back, you know, for their allotted time to go into the studio. Well, what happens next is... The NI music guy loses it, right? Like, I mean, he doesn't just, like, get a bit angry. Like, he is gone, right? Like, foaming at the mouth. He gets right up, right? We're talking teenagers. This is, like, a 45-year-old man. Like, right up in their face. And he just starts screaming, right? The words he's saying don't even make any sense. At one point, I think he's just screaming gibberish. But he's, like, so angry. He, like, keeps swearing. At one point, he's just shouting the same Swear words starting with F again and again and again. Just in these guys, like he's doesn't he's not changing. He's just shouting the same swear word, and these like kids are just like you can see them kind of like cowering, right? They don't know what to do. And eventually, at the end of the tirade, he's just like, "Move the car, move the car," right? And he just shouts, and eventually the kids are like, "We're so sorry." They're like absolutely broken. They get in the car, they drive off, and the three of us are just kind of sat there. You know, like you've just been hair dryered. We're kind of just stood like, "Oh my word!" And he turns around. And he just, like, breaks down. He just starts crying, right? At this, we've just seen him, like, this blowout. He turns and he just starts crying, and he's like, lads, I'm just, I'm just. <laughs> and he, like, he starts going, like, the head's going, the shoulders, and he's like, I don't know what came over me. <laughs> and he, like, he just gone, right? He just cries his lamps out. He was gone. And we're like, this guy's got his shoes, right? But he just lost it. And all of us at some point in their lives are going to have the experience of when the anger takes over, aren't we? If you haven't had already, there's going to be a point in your life where you just flip out. You just lose it. It may be about something totally insignificant, somebody that's parked you in. It may be about some massive thing that's happening in your world. But at some point in your life, you'll almost certainly have the experience of absolutely losing it. And the problem is how that engages with our humanity, isn't it? It's in all of us, but how it engages with our humanity, that's the problem, isn't it? I mean, so much of the disaster, for example, that is Brexit, I'm not going to get political here, but so much of the disaster that is Brexit is because in the midst of a decision that has been made, these guys should be working towards the delivering the decision, but that's not what's happening. They're just falling out with each other, and it's like tit for tat, tit for tat, tit for tat from one side to the other, and they just get stuck in this cycle of action and accusation and then counter-accusation and round and round and round and round and round, and positioning takes place. And no one's interested in solving the problem. I mean, if you look at some of the big political, cultural kind of moves around the world, like in South Africa, for example, what has happened is that one group has really violently, horrendously oppressed another group for a very long period of time. And the second that that group finds themselves in power, what do they do? They use that power to really violently, devastatingly push out the other group that did so much harm through those years. Back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Is this really what human life was meant to be like? Really? 
When it comes to relationship, our relationship with one another as human beings, is this really what our relationship was meant to be like? Today we read the words of Jesus. And we're not reading words meant only for murderers. We're reading words meant for every single one of us because Jesus is trying to speak to our relationships with one another. Because earthly relationships have this profound ability to deeply impact our heavenly relationship, don't they? Earthly relationships have this profound ability to deeply impact how we relate to God at all. A family member, a best friend who's let you down and disappointed you, that has the ability to impact, doesn't it? Somebody at work that's just on your case all the time, that very often has the ability to impact. Somebody that disappoints, somebody that frustrates, somebody that hurts. Loss. It all has the most incredible ability to impact how you relate to God. So what is Jesus trying to speak to us today? Well, the first thing I think he's trying to say in this passage today is that relationships and how we work with them is about life and not law. It's about life, not law. What do I mean? Well, here's how the passage starts. You've heard it said, you've heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment, right? That's how this passage starts. And this little verse is actually pretty critical to understanding what's going on here, and actually pretty critical to understanding what's going on in the next couple of weeks as we go through the next couple of sections in the Sermon on the Mount. Because the Sermon on the Mount uh, as a whole is about Jesus teaching and showing us what citizens of the kingdom look like. It's about etching deep in our hearts and our heads what it means to be a follower of Jesus, right? That's what this whole couple of chapters of the Bible are all about. They're all about citizenship. What does a citizen look like? And in the first section, which Rick opened up a couple of weeks ago, the Beatitudes, was all about our nature as followers, right? It's about our way, the sort of people that we're meant to be. And then last week when we were doing salt and light, it was all about telling us the function of our lives in this world, that we are to taste like and look like something of Jesus with all of our lives in all of our world, right? That's where we've got to tonight. And then we enter today, and it's another kind of new section of the sermon, and it's all about Jesus' listeners' relationship with the law. So what is the big deal about that, right? If it's all about the relationship with the law, what's the big deal about that? Well, the reality is that the people he was speaking to were people for whom the whole landscape and architecture of their faith surrounded laws, right? They were taught laws. When it came to being somebody uh, in the faith, it was all about laws, and the danger is that when we, when we come to learn about and live in a faith built around laws, that we spend our lives living just inside, don't we? I mean, set any boundary in your life, and you will spend it living just inside. So somehow when every single one of us passed our driving tests, right, somehow that knowledge, I, don't, I mean, I don't know where this came from, but somehow it gets out there that you only go down for speeding if you're doing the speed limit plus 10%, right? Have you all heard that? So like all of a sudden, right, we all feel like we don't have to drive at 70. It's actually 77, and 77 rounds up to 80, so we all drive at 80, don't we? We spend our lives just like just inside the lines. Or my whole time as a youth, as a youth leader with youth groups, eventually you'd get to talking about sex, right? And you'd be talking about all the stuff that you shouldn't be doing. And eventually, as it goes around the room, it will try, it's always a bloke. It'll go to a bloke, and that bloke will turn around and say to you at some point, I but I've got nipples too, right? And that's how it goes, isn't it? Everybody spends their time trying to etch themselves just inside the lines of the law, don't you? When something becomes about law, we spend our lives focusing on living just inside the lines. 
And the danger is that when we posture our faith around laws, then we spend it doing exactly the same thing. This whole section is about Jesus trying to say to them, as he does to us now, that he's not interested in how well we stay inside or outside the lines of the law. Jesus is interested in the condition of our hearts. He's not interested in how well you stay inside or outside. He's interested in the condition of our hearts. Jesus is interested far beyond the observation of the laws. Jesus is interested in life. He's interested in life. We know this, right? Because this is what it said in verse 20, which is where we ended last week. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. This isn't about laws. It's about lives that long and live for righteousness. And that's why this section starts with the law. And the law that he kind of reads to them is, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment, right? And that's the traditional kind of Old Testament position on the whole subject of murder, isn't it? Wrong. It's not. It's not actually the traditional Old Testament position on this subject. Because he starts with the statement, you have heard. And that's key, right? That's key to understanding not just this bit, but all of the next bits. Because this is a group of people who had heard everything about their faith, because they had been taught. They'd never read it. And that's because these were people who had spent a long time in captivity historically. And one of the byproducts of that was that now, by and large, they spoke Aramaic. And their faith was in Hebrew. They spoke Aramaic and everything was written in Hebrew. And so the only way they got to know the law was to hear from scribes and Pharisees. And the trouble with that is that you're at the mercy of that which you're taught, aren't you? If you can't read it for yourself, you're at the mercy of that which you're taught. I mean, if you can think back on like GCSE and A-level RE, right? Think about the Reformation. That was one of the big issues around the Reformation, wasn't it? That was one of the things that Martin Luther whacked into the church door in Wittenberg. And his whole thing at that stage was about them not actually being able to read the Bible for themselves. And the trouble is that the Pharisees and the scribes had managed to empty the law of so much of its power. How? Well, the law said, thou shalt not kill, right? You've all heard that. They would have heard that as well. And surely whenever you read, thou shalt not kill, right next to, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. What's the difference, right? You're kind of thinking, well, they're the same thing. There's no difference. Well, actually, it's everything. The difference is everything. Because it's like the difference between me saying to Joy, I'll never be unfaithful to you. And me saying to Joy, I won't be unfaithful to you. But if I am, I will dot, 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 dot. That's the difference. And it's everything, isn't it? Those two statements are not in any way the same in their power or in their scope, are they? They emptied it of its power and they narrowed its scope because when they said judgment at the end of that line, actually that's translated as local courts. It's got nothing to do with God. In other words, all they were saying was, if you commit murder, certain consequences will follow. And they made it just about murder when actually at its heart, the law was about principles, not merely laws. It was about principles. The Pharisees loved 
lists, right? They just love lists. There's probably quite a few list-loving people in this room right now, right? They loved lists, right? I mean, when you look at the Old Testament, you'll see that they added thousands of their own sub-laws to the originals. They loved lists. And deep down, if we're honest, we all love lists, don't we? Especially when it comes to relationships. I mean, it would be so much easier if the people in our lives that we have relationships with just wrote down all the things that they needed you to be and do, right? They just said, every day, I need you to send me one text. I need you to put an X at the end of every one of them. Uh, Later on, can you put the oven on? You know, if there was just like 20 things, your relationships would be easy, wouldn't it? Because you just spend your days going, okay, tick, 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 tick. Perfect. If I haven't ticked, oh, my relationship will be in a bad state. But we all know that's not how relationships work, right? Because we all know that relationships are about the selfless part of you. You living for somebody else in some way. You putting somebody else first in your life. And that's way, way, way more difficult, more complicated than just lists and ticking things off, isn't it? And that's exactly what Jesus is getting at when he continues. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Right? That's how he goes on. And Jesus is pushing past murder here, isn't he? He's pushing way past just murder. He's trying to say that this is about how we live. And when it comes to relationship. It's about how we see other people. You see, the word raka was an Aramaic swear word, and it meant empty-headed or jerk or numbskull, right? And the word fool is actually a translation of the Greek word moros, which is where we get moron from, which actually in their days wasn't an insult on someone's IQ. It didn't mean you were stupid. Actually, it insulted your character. It meant you were a lowlife or you were scum or you weren't a good person at its heart. Really what they're saying is idiot and low life. In other words, I'm better than you. Jesus is saying that if we want to be in right relationship with others in this world, then we must never carry superiority with us. We must never put ourselves above other people, even if we're right, even if we're wronged. We, followers of Jesus, should know better than anybody else what's in us, shouldn't we? We should know better than anybody what is in us. We should know better than anyone that the ground is level at the foot of the cross. And with all my heart, I'm thankful that we worship a God, though he himself was higher and superior, flawless, without sin. He didn't choose to act in line with that. He didn't lord it over us. In fact, he did quite the opposite, didn't he? This is what it says in Philippians 2. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. We're not better than anyone else. We're not higher than them. No matter whether they're wrong and we're right, no matter whether we're wronged, 
That's who we follow. So follow him. So follow him. Jesus is saying to a crowd in a hill then, as he does to a space in the city now, that following him means a way to life. And it's speaking to the heart of how we live. And if we want to take hold of the life that is truly life, then we follow him in the way that we live and that we see others. You know, when I studied law at Queen's, we spent so much time sifting through case law, right? Case law after case law after case law. And so much of the time, actually, that wasn't just to gain knowledge of the specific facts relating to each of the individual cases that kind of followed a legal train, right, or a precedent. It wasn't about that. Actually, when we were doing that, we were trying to understand, we were trying to realize and work out, not every detail, but the spirit of the law itself. Why did it protect these people? Why did they take measures to do this? Why did they seek to stop this? Why did they seek to empower this? It was about understanding the spirit of the law, not the detail of the law. And that's just it. Jesus is saying that when it comes to relationships with not just people closest to us, but with all of humanity, it's not about living to the letter of the law. It's about living to the spirit of the law. It's not the letter of the law. It's the spirit of our living that matters. So what are we going to do about it? And Jesus moves straight on to our action, right? And he moves straight to our action, which is to reconcile. This is about life, not law, and this is about reconciliation. 19th of May, 2018 was the day of the royal wedding, and it royally stuffed up our fabric conference, right? Who knew so many people loved a royal wedding, right? All these people that have never cared a day in their lives are like glued to the TV watching a royal wedding. Now, the thing that happened on that particular day was it wasn't Megan's dress that stole the show. It wasn't even as it is with most people's weddings, some kind of slightly bizarre drunk uncle. It, it actually, as it turned out, it was the minister, right? It was the vicar that stole the show on the day of the royal wedding. It was Bishop Michael Curry, if you remember, or if you watch the speech. I hope you have heard the talk. It's an amazing talk. If you get a chance, go back, YouTube it, all the rest. But if you haven't heard it right, it captivated so many people around the world because of how passionate and articulate and compelling what he had to say was. Actually, I think it was just because he was like a Pentecostal preacher, right? And if, you've, if it's the first time in your life you've ever heard like a black Pentecostal preacher, it does blow your mind a wee bit, right? But they all listened to it because of how passionate he was, right? Because really all he spoke about was Love, wasn't it? If you remember the headlines around the message or the little sound bites that came afterwards, it was love. For example, this is what he said. There's power in love. Do not underestimate it. Anyone who's ever fallen in love knows what I mean. When love is the way we actually treat each other, well, like we're actually family. When love is the way, we know that God is the source for us all and that we are brothers and sisters, children of God, right? And it was powerful. One of my favorite things at the time was reading other people's comments on Twitter about the preacher, right? It was incredible. There was all these sorts of comments like, oh my word, preacher's doing 50 and a 30, and all these sorts of comments around the time because they just couldn't believe the sort of talk that he was given at a royal wedding. But actually, I think it was powerful because it was a message that was focused on the positive. It was focused on the positive. And so many of the things that have changed our world have focused on the positive. When you think about Martin Luther King and the famous I have a dream speech, he said, I have a dream, not I have an objection. Not I have 25,000 problems with America as it is today. It was I have a dream. 
And the positive in this case was of what a bride and groom should be. Actually, all of humanity should be and do toward each other. Yet we all know that the yeses that we give to each other in a wedding ceremony will have to be protected and surrounded by a thousand no's for the rest of our lives, don't we? We know that's the deal. Those couple of yeses are protected by a thousand no's. And just about all of the things, the good things and the big things that you will give yourself to in your life, the big yeses are all surrounded by a thousand no's. But we set ourselves on what we are to be, not not what we aren't to be, don't we? We set ourselves on what we are to be, not what we aren't to be. And so that's exactly what Jesus does next. If we want to live in life instead of law when it comes to relationships, then this is how. So this is what he explains. He goes on, he tells two stories, okay? And this is what it says, verse 23. Therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister is something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who's taken you to court. Do it while you are still together on the way. Your adversary may hand you over to the judge and the judge may hand you over to the officer and you may be thrown into prison. Truly I tell you, you will not get out until you You've paid the last penny. Jesus gives two examples. But the positive message of what you are to do actually is the same in both. Be reconciled. He gives two examples, but it's one message. Be reconciled. But why is it that apologizing and making things right and being reconciled can be so very hard? Why is it that it's so hard? I'm sure most of us had the childhood experience of being told something along the lines of, you're not coming down again until you're sorry. Maybe your parents and you're already dishing out those sorts of orders to your kids. I don't know. Um, But I'm sure you all had that experience. And if you were like me, you probably all had that like brother or that mate down the street who would do as Buzz did in Home Alone, which is just like say sorry immediately and get back down the stairs. And you like seething upstairs, refusing to say sorry to your mom, didn't get out for like about six hours until eventually you'd calm down and you were actually able to say sorry and something about you really riled you up about that other guy that is just like sorry mom and they were like straight back out and playing football you're like they're not sorry and it drove you mad right but in our hearts when we've wronged someone and even more so if we're the grieved party sometimes it's really very difficult to reconcile isn't it it's not just a matter of saying sorry and getting over with Sometimes it's really very hard. And enough, of course, a number of years ago, uh, we had a slightly older lady that was in our group. And, and I would probably call her an agitated person from the minute you met this person. She was, there was just obviously things in her life that, that were agitating her deep in, in terms of who she was. And as the course went on, she didn't talk an awful lot about the things that made her tick. You know that thing when you're talking with people and eventually they get to the stuff that's really actually going on. As in, not the peripheral stuff, the stuff deep down in there that's bothering them. And eventually as the course went on, obviously whenever you do Alpha, you talk about the cross and you talk about forgiveness and you talk about life and all of that sort of stuff. And eventually one week when we're talking about forgiveness, she turns around. And she's wound up stiff, you know, she's one of those people that's like, you know, even the way they sit is like tight, you know, shoulders aren't relaxed, everything about her posture suggests that she's wound up tight. And eventually what comes out of her mouth was, for what he did, I will never forgive him. And she hadn't. At this point in her life, something had happened 10, 15 years before, and she hadn't forgiven this person. She'd held on to it tight. 
And I would say that as the course went on and we were able to do ministry on the weekend and, and on the healing night and all of that sort of stuff, it gradually let all, bit by bit, bit by bit, I think God began to wrestle that woman's fingers open of the grip that she held so tight to the unforgiveness that was in her life. And we watched bit by bit, kind of freedom begin to come and flow into that lady's life. Because sometimes we choose to hold on to hurt, don't we? Hurt can happen to us, but sometimes we can hold on to it. And reconciling is hard. And Jesus is saying two things in these moments, in these examples, if you want to be reconciled. The first is this, that you can't replace integrity with activity. You cannot replace integrity with activity. This is what it said in verse 23. Therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar and first go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. This is amazing, really. Because Jesus is saying the reconciliation comes before worship. Saying that if you want to come to the altar and offer your sacrifice and offer your praise to God, first you've got to get right that which is wrong with your brother or sister. Why? Because there's emptiness in the worship if we're carrying grievance in our heart. Yeah, how often do we do this, right? How often do we do it? We wade into serving and activity, doing stuff for Jesus, looking rosy on the outside, on a stage, in a team t-shirt, on Instagram, liking things, banging out hashtags, all that sort of stuff. We do all that stuff when we're carrying around anger and grievance, bitterness, disappointment, and guilt in our hearts towards other people. Jesus is saying that those walking in his way are people of integrity before activity. People for whom the place of worship and response is after we've got right with our brothers and sisters. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, one of the greats, said this. I think I can say again that we all know something about this tendency not to face directly the conviction which the Holy Spirit produces in our heart, but to say to ourselves, well now, I'm doing this and that. I'm making great sacrifices at this point. I'm being helpful in that matter. I'm busily engaged in that piece of Christian work the whole time. We're not facing the jealousy we may feel against another Christian worker or something in our personal private life. We are balancing one thing with another, thinking that this good will make up for that evil. Thinking that this good will make up for that evil. And that's us, right? So easily that's us. We try to make up for the anger and the guilt and the grievance and disappointment that we feel towards other people by generating a bunch of activity in our lives, right? If I do a whole bunch of good stuff, it'll offset the thing that I really feel in my heart towards other people and towards God. In Luke 16, this is what it says. When the Pharisees, a bunch of money-obsessed people, heard him say these things, they rolled their eyes. They dismissed him as hopelessly out of touch. So Jesus spoke to them and he said, you're masters at making yourselves look good in front of others but God knows what's behind the appearance. God's asking for our integrity before our activity. As Jesus spoke this message on a hill in Galilee, actually it would have conjured up pictures for these people of what they needed to do, right? Because the road to the temple where they would go to worship and make sacrifice was a long way off. 
And they were picturing just how preposterous it would be to buy their sacrifice, right? Some sort of goat or whatever on their way into the temple. They'd buy it. They'd arrive at the door of the temple. They'd get there and then boom, remembering, oh, I've fallen out with such and such. They were thinking how crazy it was to leave the goat just unattended in the courtyard to a temple and walk all the way back. It could take days to get there and get back again. But yet that's what Jesus was asking of them. Sometimes the road to reconciliation is a long one. But God is asking for your integrity before your activity. And second, Jesus says, it can't wait. Jesus says it's integrity over activity, and Jesus says it can't wait. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who's taking you to court. We need to settle it up quickly with people, don't we? Don't let it hang over us, and don't let it hang over them. Don't wait. Because how we love one another, how we settle up grievances, forgive, reconcile, is one of the ways that our world gets to see Jesus. How do I know? I know because when Jesus prays for the church, he prays that we would be one that the world might know. So he cares that we settle up. He cares that we're one. And in John 13, 34 to 35, this is what he says. And you command I give you, love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another by this Everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. This is the counter culture of Jesus. This is his manifesto. It's not mine. It's his. And when it comes to the relationships of our lives, it's about life and not about law. And it's about reconciling with integrity and with haste. 